Hello Skywatchers, thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Greg. And I'm Patricia. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in November in our Cosmic Diary. We're looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies. It's important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. The moon this month begins as a thin waxing crescent, having had the new moon phase on the 28th of October. At this time, the moon comes into a close conjunction with the planet Saturn, meaning a single telescope view could accommodate both the narrow crescent and the ringed planet. In some parts of the world near New Zealand, the moon will actually pass directly in front of Saturn, blocking it from view, an event known as an occultation. Wide surveys of the sky often pick up random occultations between small solar system bodies and distant stars. This can be an effective way of finding these dim neighbours in our own solar system. On the 11th, the most anticipated event of the month will occur, the transit of Mercury across the face of the Sun. A relatively rare event, the last transit of Mercury was in 2016, while the next won't happen until 2032. The event itself will last several hours, beginning at 12.35 and ending at 18.05 GMT. While the transit of Venus in 2012 was readily visible to those wearing eclipse glasses, Mercury is both much smaller and further away than Venus, making it too small to be seen. Instead, a telescope with a carefully fitted solar filter would be required to view the transit. It's also possible that a telescope could be used to carefully project an image of the Sun onto white card or paper. While safe enough for viewing, if the Sun slips out of view of the eyepiece, it will instead be projected onto the inner workings of the telescope, which can cause damage. So only do this if you are confident in the technique. Historically, transits of Mercury and Venus have been instrumental in producing estimates of the scale of the solar system, particularly the Sun-Earth distance, before radar ranging was possible. The Moon reaches its full phase on the 12th and unfortunately remains big and bright during the peak of the Leonid's meteor shower on the 16th and 17th. While not the biggest meteor shower of the year, the Leonids is probably best known for its semi-regular meteor storms, when this moderate shower becomes vastly boosted. Unfortunately, the densest clouds of debris that can produce exceptional rates won't be encountered again until 2099, while more moderate storms may be a decade or so away. This year, the possible 15 meteors per hour will be further marred by the bright light of the moon, masking its fainter members. Even so, it's well worth a watch to try and spot the brightest meteors. Wait until after midnight, but before dawn, fill the sky with your view and wait to get a lucky glimpse. And make certain to wrap up warm as the temperatures continue to plummet. The winter months brings back one of the most well-known of the constellations, Orion the Hunter. Its familiar shape plays host to a number of fascinating sights for astronomers of all abilities. Its brighter stars, Betelgeuse and Rigel, 
are clear examples of how stars can have different colors depending on their class. Even to the unaided eye, Betelgeuse is a deep orange color, while Rigel is a bright blue-white. Each are supergiant stars late in their evolution, each a candidate for a future supernova. If Betelgeuse did explode, the bright burst of light would be visible even during the day and last for many weeks or months. It would also represent the closest supernova to Earth studied in the modern age by a very long way. Unfortunately, it is unlikely, though not impossible, to occur within our lifetimes. Elsewhere in Orion, more advanced astronomers can try to observe the Great Orion Nebula, a vast cloud of interstellar gas and dust that is one of the most active star-forming regions in the relatively local region of the galaxy. It can be found just below Orion's belt in his sword or dagger, is visible through binoculars or a small telescope, and with some clever astrophotography can be one of the most accessible deep sky objects for photography, providing an excellent target to hone your skills on. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, rng.co.uk, but now it's time for our cosmic news. Welcome to this month's cosmic news story part of our podcast. Each month, Greg and I will pick a topic in either astronomy or space exploration, either a breaking story or something from history that we want to talk about. And in our podcast session, we will talk about those stories. And then at the end of it, you all, of course, get the opportunity to vote for your favorite story. And that's done on our Twitter poll. So, Greg, what have you chosen for this month? Well, this month, I've got a couple of different stories, both related to the topic of planet formation, some new insights that have come from one of our most advanced facilities around the world. Planet formation holds some of the biggest remaining mysteries in astronomy. Um, it's only partially understood, and although we think we have a reasonable idea of how things work from observations of, our, of planets in our own solar system um, and some observations out in the rest of the universe as well, there are specific key things that we still don't fully understand. Um, the most obvious one being uh, exactly how small planetesimals eventually become large planets. There's a big problem that we have um, in trying to go from uh, tiny grains of sand and dust and gas to a full-size planet. It's rem uh, remarkably difficult to do that. The problem of planet formation is inextricably linked to the formation of stars, and that we think we understand fairly well for the most part. You have a vast cloud of mostly hydrogen and helium gas which collapses under its own gravity, perhaps helped out by a push uh, from a nearby supernova explosion that starts the whole process um, off. This cloud of gas, as it collapses under its own gravity, begins to heat up in the very centre. Thus, a star is formed in the very centre of this cloud. Uh, it starts to fuse hydrogen in its core, and that's uh, the point where we have uh, a star as opposed to a protostar. And then, because the whole cloud inevitably will be spinning at least a bit, as this vast cloud collapses from huge scales all the way down to 
solar system sized scales, uh, the whole thing starts to spin faster and faster and faster. This is just the conservation of angular momentum. The classic example is an ice skater skating on the ice, uh, spinning, in the, uh, spinning on the spot, and then when they bring their arms in, they begin to spin faster. They haven't put any more energy in. It's just that holding objects like your own arms at a long distance from the center of the point of spin has a lot of angular momentum associated with it. If you bring those arms in, all of that angular momentum is concentrated and you end up with the object spinning faster. From uh, this spinning material, the gravity pulls the material downwards in the direction that it isn't spinning, but it's held outwards in the direction where it is. And the result is what we call a disk, specifically a protoplanetary disk. And it's in here that we think planets form. And the leading theory of how planets form is that you get uh, small particles collecting together through electrostatic forces. Those are forces associated with charges and positive and negative charges coming together. Um, but uh, eventually gravity takes over when you grow large enough bits. And it's here where the, the, some of the biggest mysteries exist, exactly how we go from this small electrostatic domain to the much larger scale gravity domain and what happens in between. The problem is that all of this planet formation is happening behind a veil of gas and dust. The very disk and nebula that formed all of these uh, objects in the first place is also blocking visible light from getting out so that we can actually see what's going on. So we have to observe these things in a form of light that is, number one, emitted by whatever it is that we're looking at. It'd be useless if, it was, if we were looking at a type of light that wasn't even present in the first place. Um, but also that the surroundings are transparent too, so that the signal can get out and reach our telescopes so that we can observe them. And the answer, for the most part, is in a range that we don't often talk about all that much. It's not one of the ranges that you're probably most familiar with. Um, it's called the millimetre-submillimetre range. And that refers to the specific wavelength of light that we're looking at. So light of different types have different wavelengths. Um, if you're talking sort of hundreds of nanometers, that's hundreds of billionths of a meter, then that's the sort of light that our own eyes see, that's visible light. Uh, if you're looking sort of meters and beyond, then you're well into radio waves. Uh, if you're looking much, much smaller than those hundreds of nanometers, then you're looking at ultraviolet and x-rays and even gamma rays. We're talking about light which has a wavelength of around about a millimeter, maybe sub-millimeter. And this is uh, somewhere between what we refer to as microwaves, uh, which is the same sort of light that uh, some transmitters use, but also that is used to heat up your food in a microwave oven. Um, but it's still shorter than sort of full radio emission. And the best observatory for these observations in the world, really, is one called ALMA which is the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array. It's certainly the biggest 
of these observatories. It's a vast array of 66 individual dishes all working together as a vast interferometer. Now an interferometer is a type of telescope that uses lots of individual telescopes together to make one big one. There's a very good reason for doing that. The detail that you can see with a telescope is dependent on how wide that telescope is. The wider the telescope's what we call aperture, the bit that receives the light, the smaller the detail we're capable of potentially seeing, assuming other things don't get in the way, like the atmosphere, which for submillimeter, thankfully, isn't too much of a problem. Uh, but the thing is that the telescope doesn't need to be what you might say complete, in inverted commas, in order to work as a telescope. You can have lots of individual telescopes with large gaps in between them, and they can still operate together as one single telescope if you're very, very clever. Um, and there were, <laughs> have been a whole range of uh, engineers and astronomers that have been extremely clever to be able to tie these telescopes together so that you're viewing the same object in the same way and tracking the light individually in each of these telescopes, combining the image together. And because you can have these telescopes effectively as far apart as you want them to be, you can produce potentially extremely large telescopes, far larger than you could with one single dish or one single reflecting telescope. Um, this type of light, submillimeter light, is received by uh, radio dishes, similar to uh, the large radio telescopes that you might well have seen, like um, uh, Jodrell Bank here uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, and Alma's dishes are movable, so you can move them to different places across the ground. Um, as small as 150 meters between the uh, between two dishes, uh, or all the way up to 16 kilometers. So this is an absolutely vast, vast telescope, even though it's only actually filling in relatively small amounts yeah. of that space with dishes. It doesn't. It's not necessarily a problem. You can fill in the rest of the image with special techniques. So ALMA had its first light in 2011 and has since then been providing some of the most detailed images of dust and gas throughout our universe. It was also one of many facilities that worked together to produce the image of the black hole earlier this year um, in something called the Event Horizon Telescope, a whole group of different radio telescopes working together across the entire planet in order to produce effectively an Earth-sized telescope, so in exactly the same way as ALMA does with its own dishes, combining multiple telescopes together to make an even bigger one. But more often, it focuses on observations of very young stars, star formation, and planet formation. And there have been two very interesting studies very recently, uh, which ALMA has contributed to, uh, which I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, even with ALMA, we can't see the planets directly. Uh, they're still shrouded in cocoons of gas hidden away. Um, but what we can do is we can see those protoplanetary disks and then see gaps in those disks. So just like the gaps in the rings of Saturn, which is where we think, uh, where we find occasionally 
moons yeah. in the, uh, the around. Shepherd moons, yeah. yeah, absolutely. The shepherd moons of uh, Saturn's rings. In a very similar way, although with some differences, those gaps in the planet protoplanetary disks can correspond to where planets are currently forming, effectively pulling material out of the disk and leaving behind this channel or trench that they've cut out of this disk. And Alma made observations of a particularly young star called uh, HD 163296. Very catchy, that one. Uh, in the type of light which is emitted by the molecule carbon monoxide. So looking for a very, very specific type of light um, emitted by carbon monoxide gas. And it spotted gaps in the disk uh, at 87, 140, and 237 times the distance of the Earth from the Sun. So these are very, very far out planets on our solar system scale. In fact, there aren't any planets, barring the existence of a planet nine, of course, yeah, of course yeah. uh, that are that far away from our own Sun. And yet that seems to be where these planets are forming. What's interesting, though, is it's always been assumed, uh, to an extent at least, that the planet eats the gas which is right in the, th the middle part of the disk. By which I mean, uh, think, of, um, uh, think of the disk as uh, being a burger, for example, uh, with lots of different layers above and below. The planet is somewhere in the burger itself, in the, the patty in the middle. Um, and it was always sort of assumed that it was just eating that and making itself bigger. But Alma has now spotted vast gaseous waterfalls, effectively. Material flowing from the, the bun of the burger, as it were, down onto where the planet is feeding. So this is uh, very, very interesting to see that the, the disk is being eaten in very different ways to, to what we expected. Um, and it's a much more complicated picture than we thought before. Even more spectacularly, very recently, Alma has produced a, an image of uh, planets forming around binary stars. Now, binary stars make up most of the stars in our galaxy, presumably in the rest of the universe as well. They're more common than single stars. Our sun is relatively unusual in that. Um, and how planets form around binary star systems is a particularly weird question. They are likely to be far more unstable, likely to be knocked around all sorts of places by the simple fact that it's constantly having another star fly relatively close by to it, and potentially knocking it out of orbit of either one of the first uh, of those stars. And yet, around another extremely uh, recognisable star's uh, name, this time BHB 2007-11, um, which is a star system, a binary star system, which is only maybe one to 200,000 years old. These are extraordinarily young star systems. A binary star system separated by about 28 times the distance from the Sun to the Earth. So that's somewhere between the orbits of Uranus and Neptune. And you can see two individual protoplanetary disks around those two star system, uh, stars, but interacting with one another, making this very peculiar sort of pretzel shape in Alma's image. 
with grand streams of material spiraling inwards, enough potentially to make 260 times the mass of the Earth just in dust, more solid than material, uh, alone. Not that we're expecting 260 times the mass of the Earth to be produced in terrestrial rocky planets, but certainly signs that there's a vast amount of material there capable of producing planets. And continuing to study binary star systems in particular is going to be very, very important. If our understanding of planetary formation around single star systems is complicated enough, Throwing in another star or two. Yeah, that's you've really complicated. Yeah, absolutely. Point, yeah. And with most star systems being binaries, it's possible that most planets will be around binary systems as well. So understanding those is going to be very, very important. And Alma will continue to provide uh, lots more data and observations for those in the future. This is really an interesting story because I'm just thinking back to the time before we started discovering exoplanets, for example, where mm. we, we thought we understood planetary formation just by using our own solar system yeah. as that example saying, so we have rocky planets, we have gas giants, we figured it out. Yeah. Then we started to find exoplanets and all of a sudden we were confronted by the fact that we had hot Jupiters. Yeah, super Earths, exactly. mini Neptunes. And that has thrown everything back because now we realize, well, actually, we didn't really understand planetary formation and we've had to rethink it. It's obviously come up with good models. But now with this, when we're going back to those really early stages in that formation process, and so now we're seeing things that presumably people had never thought you would see, hmm? as I said, waterfalls of material sort of feeding into forming these planets. I think it's it would be great if all of this sort of ties everything in and helps to explain the systems that we have observed around exoplanets and how everything ties in. And of course, now you're mentioning with binary systems as well. I mean, even that's a huge jump as well. And then, of course, my mind naturally goes to Tatooine. And, uh, of course. Of course, yeah. <laughs> so I've decided that my story this month is going to begin with a question. Oh, yes. So, Greg. Okay. <laughs> why was the first close-up image of Mars that was shown on TV a coloured-in image of Mars? Sounds like a very bad joke. Uh, I don't know. Go on. Well, to answer this question, we, of course, have to do some time travel. Okay. My favourite thing to do. And we're heading all the way back to the 28th of November, 1964. And that was when NASA's Mariner 4 spacecraft launched from the Earth. Its destination, the red planet Mars. Uh, of course, that means that 2019 marks the 55th anniversary of the launch of Mariner 4. Now, Mariner 4 itself was quite an ambitious mission. It was hoped that this spacecraft would become the first spacecraft to perform a successful flyby of Mars. But importantly return the first pictures of the Martian surface. Now, its mission objectives were crucial because everything we knew about Mars up until that point were based solely on telescopic observations that had been performed here from the Earth. And when mission scientists began planning Mariner 4's mission, they had very little spaceflight experience to guide them. At that stage, there had only been one successful planetary mission, which was Mariner 2's flyby of Venus in 1962. 
And also we have to bear in mind that at the same time, obviously NASA were focusing efforts on the Apollo programs as well as because the moon was obviously that big target as well. The other thing that mission scientists had was they had to plan their entire mission around a map of Mars that had been produced by t from telescopic observations made by the United States Air Force because that was the best that they had at the time. They didn't have what we have today. We I want to plan a mission to Mars. Here are my high-resolution images, and I can figure out where I want to send something. They did not have that, obviously, at that time. Um, and Mariner 4 itself was designed with three main objectives in mind, but one of those objectives was to return the first and most detailed pictures of the surface of the planet in the hopes of revealing geologic as well as atmospheric processes, because there was still a lot of uncertainty at the time about Mars and if it had an atmosphere, what that atmosphere might be like. Now, as I mentioned, at, obviously at the time, everything we knew about Mars then was based on telescopic observations. And it was known at the time that Mars underwent these seasonal changes. And some observers had recorded a visual event called the wave of darkening, which sounds quite scary. Hmm. Uh, but all it was is that certain regions of Mars appeared to grow darker. And in early 1965, a paper published by Carl Sagan and Paul Swan spoke about potential future landing sites on Mars in terms of looking towards a future of how we would explore the red planet. And interestingly, um, on the very first page of this document, they made a statement which says, the present body of scientific evidence suggests but does not unambiguously demonstrate the existence of life on Mars. In particular, the photometrically observed waves of darkening, which proceed from the vaporizing polar caps through dark areas of the Martian surface, have been interpreted in terms of seasonal biological activity. Mm. Because it's certainly true that at that time, there was still a group of scientists who thought that Mars was capable of supporting advanced life. And so part of the idea about the Mariner missions and all the later missions to Mars were of course going to be, we have to answer this question, is, is there life on Mars? So Mariner 4 took around seven and a half months to travel out to the red planet and it flew by Mars on July 14th slash 15th, 1965. So sort of over the border of those two days. And during its flyby, it immediately began to acquire images, and the images that were obtained were stored on board on a tape recorder before being transmitted back to the Earth. Now, each of the images, the way that we're going to do this data transmission is each image was consisted of 200 rows of 200 dots, with each dot given a number. And that number is in the range from 0 to 63, which designated the darkness of the dot. Now, if that sounds a bit crazy, what's going on, it's actually similar to how they print images in newspapers. So if you have a black and white press, you don't have any color tones, so you all generally use dots of different sizes to create that image, which gives the illusion from a distance of tones and shades. Now, each line of the image was sent back to the Earth where JPL had a computer which is designed to read in each image and then reconstruct that image based on all the numbers and reproducing it. But of course, it was going to take 
quite some time for the computer to do that. Hmm. And the mission scientists were impatient. They wanted to make sure that the camera on board Mariner 4 had done its job and they just did not have the patience to wait for a computer to spend a couple of hours reconstructing the image. So what did they do? They printed out each line of the image with all of its numbers on it and stuck each strip of the image up on a wall and they realized that if they assigned the color scheme to those numbers, they would be able to reproduce the image. So one of the scientists, uh, Richard Grum, went to a local art shop and asked for chalk in different shades of grey because they knew that they were going to get this nice black and white image. So they figured if we can do it in grayscale, we'll get some idea. But the shop did not sell chalk. <laughs> so he was forced to purchase a set of coloured pastels. And he and his team then took a selection of pastels and they opted for sort of a brown and orange red scheme, created their color key and then proceeded to color in each block by hand so that they could see if they had captured an image of Mars. And there's a fantastic image on the internet was taken of Grum and his team standing all coloring in this, all these strips of paper and what was really great about it is they were filling it in from left to right so top to bottom left to right they obviously were like we need to do this properly get strip by strip done now at the same time that grum and his team were coloring in this image well the press office at jpl grew increasingly nervous they were concerned that the media might get wind of what these scientists were doing and would much rather want to see the colored image than the actual image or in some cases they might see the colored image before seeing mm. the actual image so the press office actually instructed him and his team to stop stop what they were doing but Grum was smart and he argued that they had to continue doing it to verify that the camera had worked otherwise there would be no image to show the media. So the press office eventually agreed for his team to carry on doing it, provided they were behind a movable partition wall and surrounded by armed guards <laughs> while coloring this image in. So you can imagine now there's a group of people <laughs> coloring in an image surrounded by armed guards to keep the media out. Right. <laughs> But, as things happen, the media found out about the image and got so excited and kept pestering the press office that eventually the press office realized they couldn't keep them out. So in the end, this hand-colored an image of Mars became the first close-up image of Mars to be seen on TV. <laughs> Very good. So they released that image and then they obviously released the actual image that mm -hmm. had been taking place. And if you were curious, as for the image itself, um, you could actually see the edge of Mars in the image and it also managed to capture clouds in the Martian atmosphere. Mm. And that was a great confirmation that there were indeed some sort of atmospheric processes taking place in Mars because all of a sudden there was pictures of Mars mm. um, with clouds in its atmosphere. Mariner 4 paved the way for future missions to Mars and uh, although as we know there have been a number of failures along mm. the way trying to get to the red planet 
We're now in a situation where we have satellites in orbit at Mars taking continuous observations and we have the Curiosity rover as well as NASA's InSight lander studying Mars from the ground. And if you're curious about the waves of darkening that they spoke about, well thanks to the spacecraft at Mars, well we now know that they're not due to biological processes, just the fact that the carbon dioxide polar ice caps sublimate during the summer seasons and end up revealing the surface that is actually beneath them. And we also see sublimation of carbon dioxide frost in the surface of Mars as well, which tends to bring darker material up to the surface, hence why Mars sometimes does appear to get darker during those seasonal changes. And as a little quirk, thanks to NASA's InSight lander, you can now get daily weather reports from Mars. <laughs> So if you are curious as to what the weather is like on Mars right now, simply use your favorite web browser and head to the InSight mission webpage where you will find the current weather forecast and the weather measurements on Mars. And I can confirm, having had a look at them, it's a bit cold. Yeah, it's probably a bit cold. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is fantastic. Uh, we've been talking and... Um, recently here at the, the ROG about some of the, the old observations completed at the ROG and at our, uh, other places around the world and this idea of, um, of the possibility of vegetation and other features on the surface of Mars. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting to know that even into the 1960s there was still uh, a, a good number of, of highly respected uh, astronomers and yeah. scientists who still did seriously believe that there was a good chance that we would find wide-scale uh, uh, habitation of, of some of description some, some, yeah. on the surface yeah. of Mars. And, that's, and now, of course, we know that it is, at least as far as we can tell, pretty barren. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what I've always found fascinating about um, solar system exploration, but particularly studies of Mars, because you don't realize that things we can immediately say today is, you won't find that, we now know this and this. If you trace the history back, in terms of, say for example, how much we know in astronomy about other things, these are really, really close by. It's a very short time scale where we've had confirmations that there are no such things as the canals on Mars. Um, but also you do find trees on Mars. Mm. So if anyone's interested, just Google trees on Mars. Trees on Mars, okay. Probably worth the look. <laughs> I take it not quite the type of trees we're most used to. No. No. <laughs> worth a look all the same. Worth a look, yeah. So there you have it. Two new news stories for you to choose your favourite between. Um, and you can vote for those on our Twitter feed at ROG Astronomers. Last month, Patricia was talking to us about collisions of objects in space, particularly collisions of comets into the planet Jupiter and the possibility of future collisions as well. And I was talking to you about the discovery of an exoplanet in the habitable zone that actually has water in its atmosphere. With 63% of the vote, I did actually win that one with the Habitable Exoplanet. Not particularly surprising, very, very exciting story uh, to have broken last month. Again, you now have two news stories for you to choose between. Please do vote on them at ROG Astronomers. 
and I hope you join us for more next month from Look Up.